This episode is brought to you by Aircraft Accessories of Oklahoma. When it's time for an aircraft component inspection, overhaul, repair, or replacement, you need experienced technicians you can trust and friendly service you can count on. Aircraft Accessories of Oklahoma, a family-owned business since 1959, delivers just that. Our techs have real-world experience and provide sales, service, and overhaul for piston engine aircraft accessories. We also have limited turbine capabilities such as fuel pumps, starter generators, and prop governors. And we can overhaul propellers ranging from fixed pitch to turbine. Propeller pickup and delivery service is available. And one more thing, mention this podcast to receive 5% off your next sale, service, or overhaul. Visit aircraftaccessoriesofok.com. This episode is brought to you by Genesis Aerosystems, a Moog company and leading provider of autopilots for rotor and fixed-wing aircraft. The Genesis STEC 3100 Digital Autopilot provides increased safety, decreased pilot workload, and is approved for over 200 makes and models. To learn more about the STEC 3100, visit genesis-aerosystems.com. That's genesis-aerosystems.com. I got tons of room to take off, so... I load up the plane and I take off and, you know, I'm in the ground effect, so I get off the ground and I'm like maybe two or three hundred feet up and, and I stop climbing. Welcome to another edition of There I Was, a podcast where we put you in the cockpit with pilots in challenging situations and we learn the skills and knowledge they use to fly out of them. I'm Richard McSpadden. My co-host, Kristen Bodner, is on maternity leave and so we wish her the best in her new family and we'll see her in the new year. Tyler Pangborn is our producer for the show, behind the scenes recording and editing. Tyler, who do we have lined up for today? Hey Richard. Our guest today is Kenneth Gorlick, but our listeners probably know him better as Kenny G, the saxophonist. Kenny G is the best-selling instrumental musician of the modern era and one of the best-selling artists of all time, with global sales totaling more than 75 million records. He is also a longtime general aviation pilot. Fantastic. We caught up with Kenny in between shows, and so let's tune into that Skype call. So, uh, Kenny, thanks for joining us on the There I Was uh, podcast. Can you tell? Can you give us an idea? How did you get started in flying? What was your kind of inspiration? Well, you know, Richard, you know I'm a, I'm a musician, so as a sax player and in the business, uh, you get the chance to meet, you know, lots of musicians. So there was a a really great bass player friend of mine, his name is, is Nathan East. He's, a, he's actually a really famous bass player in, within the musical community. So Nathan, uh, we're just really great friends. And then he started flying lessons at a place called the, the Pilots Co-op out of Burbank Airport. And he said, man, you got to go and, and, and uh, you know, take a flying lesson. It's really fun. And, and I've always been kind of intrigued with flying, but I never really thought too much about it. And once he said that, I thought I'd give it a try. So I went down and um, took my first lesson from this really great guy named Harry Murlowski, uh, one of the pilots there at the pilot co-op. So, you know, we basically rent a plane and then they take you up. And, and I just loved it. And I thought, wow, this is great. And I was really intrigued and wanted to, to understand how it all worked. So that kind of got me going. And I, I just kept up after then. Was this, you know, had your career pretty much launched by then or you were still in the, you know, sort of early stages of your, of your career? Like, like about what time frame was this career-wise? This is around 1988. So, okay. uh, let's see. So my first record came out in 1982 and I had three records that came out and really didn't 
sell very much, you know, and uh, the ra- there wasn't much radio uh, support for instrumental music back in those days. So for right around 1986, um, everything changed. There was a, there was a new change in the format. There's all of a sudden there's instrumental music stations coming up. They called it smooth jazz. They just came up with a name for it. And I had an album out called duotones, Richard, you and I were just talking about that uh, before we started recording, but, um, yeah. And so that record came out and for some reason, Everybody connected with one of my songs there, a couple of my songs, and so that got a lot of airplay, and then my record started to sell. You know, instead of selling, you know, twenty or thirty thousand, they started selling like four or five million records. So it changed everything for me, and and I guess that's probably another reason I wanted to start flying, just because I actually had the money for pilot's lessons. So it was it wasn't it wasn't a big strain on me to do it, and and I really thought it would be a lot of fun, maybe if I could ever fly to one of my shows. Yeah, but interestingly enough, you started flying right about the time your career got probably really, really busy and somewhat hectic. And uh, part of the things that our pilots, you know, fly with, general aviation uh, pilots deal with is the whole balance of the, the work-life balance and the work-flying balance of, you know, the, the career demands. But at the same time, the proficiency demands that flying really demands for you to be good and safe at it. How did you deal with those uh, pressures? Well, I'm pretty disciplined. I mean, uh, you know, I, I still practice three hours every day. So even before our, our conversation today, I've already practiced my three hours today. I might even decide to practice another hour later. So I, I'm, I'm a very disciplined guy when it comes to getting good at things that I'm interested in. So obviously I'm very interested in playing the saxophone. So, you know, for the last you know 50 years, I've been playing this thing and practicing every day for hours and hours. So when it comes to anything, um, I really like golf and I really enjoy flying. So those things, if I'm going to do them, I'm going to give it the time that it, that that's required to maintain a, a, a really great level at it because I only like doing things that I'm good at and I only like to be good at things I do. So, yeah. You know, for me, it was, there's no question that I'm going to, to you know, if I need to get, get up with a, a pilot to, to shoot some approaches because I'm a little rusty, I'm going to do that and, you know, fly the hours I need to fly and study the way I need to study so that I'm always, you know, at least very proficient uh, at flying. And so, yeah, I never really, that never was a problem for me. I, I never had a problem carving out the time for it because it was something I wanted to do, like exercising. It's like, you know, if you want to exercise an hour a day, it just takes discipline and you can do it. Yeah, yeah, great. Well, um, I know that you, or at least I, I, I think you do, I think you own a Beaver now, is that right? I, yeah, the Havilland Beaver, yeah. Yeah, yeah. What are some of the other airplanes that you've, uh, so I kind of skipped forward, but um, so you, you got your pilot's license, and then from there, can you walk us a little bit through your, your journey to how you got to the Beaver? Did you go right to that, or were there some intermediate steps? No, there were some many intermediate steps. So I got my license, I think I got my license in a Cherokee, it was a low-wing, single-engine I did all my studying down at Burbank, um, but I ended up getting my pilot's license in Seattle. For whatever reason, it was just the, the timing of everything, and the airspace up there was so much less complicated. It was, it was pretty easy, actually, mm-hmm. in terms of flying around. And um, so after that, uh, I actually lived in Seattle uh, for a while. Um, actually, yeah, but before that, I... Um, I was really interested in these uh, experimental planes called glass airs. Yeah, I yeah, just, sure. People talked about them, and I read about them, and I looked at some, and so I ended up buying a, a, an airplane from a guy out of Walla Walla, Washington, and it was Triple One Juliet Quebec, and it was a glass air three, and and it was super cool to fly, and it was not easy to fly because it was yeah. so fast, and the right. wings were um, kind of small, so it's it it doesn't glide very much, but it really goes, goes fast, high performance, and all that, so. 
anyway, I, I did that for, gosh, I think I had that plane for a few years, and I put about a thousand hours on it. So I guess I had it for more than a few years. Maybe, well, I was flying a lot back then, so I can't remember how many years I had it. But I flew one thousand hours on that plane and just decided that I was done. I didn't really want to fly that kind of plane anymore. And I thought, well, I, I'm, I'm moving to Seattle and, and I'm going to live on Lake Washington. And I've seen some other of the people at, on the lake that had amphibious planes, although some of them were just straight float planes. And I ended up getting a straight float plane, uh, the Beaver. Uh, I think it was in 1995, I think, somewhere mm-hmm. around there, I got mm-hmm. the plane. It was built by Kenmore Aviation in Seattle. And so, you know, it's, it's basically a new plane, but they just find an old fuselage and then they end up pretty much replacing almost every little rivet. So yeah. the whole plane is brand new. The engines uh, are refurbished uh, Pratt & Whitney 985. So it's, you, gotta, you basically have a new plane when you're done. And, and I enjoyed that for, for a while. It was on straight floats and then I ended up putting it on amphibs and that's where it is today. And now I'm on my second engine. Oh, wow. Same, same airplane and, and second engine. So that's interesting. You kind of went from a Cherokee 140 or 180, it sounds like, something, something like that, a pretty, pretty uh, prolific trainer you know, in the environment. Yeah. And from there, you stepped up to a glass air, which is a, which is a substantial um, step up in terms of just speed and, and um, you know, mental uh, agility, I want to say, while you're flying, just because of the, the nature of the speed. Yeah. And then you kind of went uh, back down the speed curve to the other way with the Beaver, um, but still a pretty challenging airplane to fly. So I've, I've never flown one. What's, what are some of the flight characteristics of the Beaver? What's it like? Well, one thing about the Beaver I've never really worried about is just, uh, you know, having enough power because that engine just... It's just a really powerful engine. It's got to 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 support all the weight of the amphibs are like 1,100 pounds uh, on, on their own. So it's mm. uh, it's a big it's a big heavy plane. But um, I guess the the main thing about the Beaver, every, everything happens slow. So that's good in terms of like shooting approaches and things like that. You have a lot of time to to you know right right the wrongs if you happen to be a little bit off of your course or whatever. You've got plenty of time to kind of get things right. So it's not happening so fast. Like the glass air was just. You know, I used to fly that IFR as well, and and things were happening super fast. Yeah, but right. Not 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 in the Beaver, and um, well, I guess the challenge is, you know, what when you're flying a float plane and you decide to land on a on a lake, it's it's there's nobody telling you how to do that. So there's no one saying, well, the wind's coming from this direction, mm-hmm. and this is where you need to land and watch out for these uh, submerged logs. And by the way, there's four guys in canoe over on this side of the <laughs> yeah. lake and, and there's a jet ski guy about to come in your path. No, there's none of that. Right. So you have to look at, and, and you have to kind of analyze the situation, make sure the you know, you're got to think about your altitude. You got to think about the temperature outside and how big the lake is in case you need to take off again. You may not be able to take off if it's too high altitude or it's too hot. So mm-hmm. you got to you got to make all those decisions yourself, and then, then once you land, then the hard, hard I think the hardest part is is docking because yeah. there's no reverse on the Beaver, um, and so you turn the engine off and you float to your to the spot where you think you're going to dock up, whether it's to a dock or your shoreline, and and if you you know if you miss it, you you're kind of screwed because you know, there's no yeah. there's nothing you can do about it except get the paddle out and start paddling. Yeah, so I did the, my first uh, seaplane flying earlier this summer in a in a Super Cub. Yeah, and the, my my first reaction to it was, oh my gosh, this is so much fun. Uh, it's got to be one of the most fun things that I've done in, in an airplane. And and then the second thing was just all the things that you mentioned. You know, is it, it is kind of different because there feels like there are a lot more variables that you got to think about. 
And the whole docking thing was, uh, yeah, I, I would definitely echo that of, of the challenge of doing that. Through through all your uh, flying in the beaver, the glass air, did you ever have a situation that got kind of tense for whatever reason? Well, I've, I've flown the beaver across the country about um, maybe eight times now. I've got it flown hmm. from L.A. to New York, basically. Uh, and I, I usually go up to the Toronto area. There's lakes up there. And and um, so I've done this cross country from L.A. there back and forth. And I, when you say, is there one or two times, there's a lot of times when you're flying that kind of a plane, you know, across the country, mm-hmm. over the Rockies. Um, one of the scariest things that happened was, so there I was doing my cross country from L.A. to Toronto. And the hardest part of the flight is the first portion, which is uh, L.A., past Albuquerque. It's, it's, hard, it's hard because it's, I'm doing it in the summertime and it's really hot and it's a lot of high altitude flying. And do you have your amphibs on or did you put wheels on at that for that? It's, it's amphibs. It's never, I've okay. never done anything but amphibs. Okay. Okay. Got it. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. So then, um, Ben, I've never had any trouble with anything with this plane. So I'm kind of like, and I've already got almost 2000 hours on the plane and I have probably 3,500 hours of flying experience. So I'm not a new pilot. I'm right. not in, in the honeymoon little phase where, you know, you've been with, with instructors and nothing bad has ever happened and you think that you're invincible and you never think that anything could happen. So I'm really kind of, I'm a, I'm, I'm a pay attention pilot. I'm looking around at where I might need to land if I, you know, if it lose your engine, et cetera. But for whatever reason, I went and decided to land at this airport in Arizona. I think it was the Mesa airport. Hmm. I think so. But it was a, it, it had like a 7,500 foot runway. And I'm thinking, that's so much room. I got tons of room to take off. I don't have to worry about a thing. And I load up the plane with fuel and I fuel up the tip tanks as well. Cause I figure I'm going to go all the way from there to Albuquerque or maybe beyond. And I don't feel like once I'm up at altitude, I really don't want to come back down because it mm-hmm. takes so long to climb. Right. Yeah. You know, sometimes you're only climbing a hundred feet a minute because it's just a heavy and it's hot and, and that's just the way it goes with the beaver. So mm-hmm. I load up the plane and I take off and, you know, I'm in the ground effect, so I get off the ground, and I'm like maybe two or three hundred feet up, and and I stop climbing, hmm. and I'm just kind of like a little bit, um, not I'm not scared. I'm just kind of curious, like why am I stop climbing? Perplexed, Do I have my power yeah. settings right? Yeah. Gear still down? No, I got the gear up. I got my flaps at cruise. Now I'm got my climb, and I'm, but now I'm not only am I stop climbing, I'm starting to drift downward, hmm. very slowly. But I'm not climbing. I'm doing the opposite of climbing, and there's nothing in front of me except some, some residential place so that there's homes coming up. And I'm, 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 I already know there's no reason I'm going to be making any, any turns at this point because yeah. that's going to, you're going to lose lift. So I'm going to keep going straight. And I'm doing that, and I'm, and I'm still losing altitude. And I thought, wow, this is what you read about in these magazines. Mm-hmm. You got, I, I completely didn't think about the density altitude. I loaded my plane up way too heavy, and... What am I, you know, what was I thinking? So yeah. that's all going through my mind. Meanwhile, you're pushing the throttle probably through the through the firewall almost, right? Double checking your yeah. full power. Yeah, yeah. Now I got full power, and now I'm trying to figure out, well, what's my best flap setting? You know, I need more flap mm-hmm. for lift, or, or, is it, or is the drag going to cause me to, to, to not climb? Or, so I'm now, because with a beaver, you pump the flaps. So I'm mm-hmm. pumping a little bit more, I'm pumping a little bit less, and I'm working with power. And then I noticed that my oil pressure is not where it's supposed to be. Hmm. And hmm. I'm not sure if the two things are related or not, but yeah. I just noticed, wow, I've never seen my oil pressure look like that before. So, <laughs> so while this is all going on, I take a picture 
of my dial, my oil pressure dial, just because I want to, because I'm, I, I figure I'm going to text it to one of my beaver uh, experts in Seattle, and maybe somebody can tell me what's going on. So finally, so you must have figured out that you could stabilize at some hundred, couple hundred feet above the ground, right? So you, you, yeah, you, yeah, it, it's yeah, it stopped. I stopped going down, but nothing was happening. I was just kind of, I just like was, I was afraid to touch anything. I was right. like, okay. And we're not, we're not, we're not dropping anymore. I'm alone in the plane. I'm going to say we, I'm just meaning the plane and right, I. Yep. And so now I'm starting to climb at like 10 feet a minute, 20 feet a minute. I'm going, okay, I'm not doing anything. I'm, I'm still flying straight. I'm not going to even make any slight turn. So I, I start climbing. Now I'm up at a thousand feet. So I figure, okay. So now I, I, I use my cell phone. I call one of my guys up in Seattle. I show him the picture of this um, oil pressure. And he, and he says, I said, what's, what's going on? And he goes, well, uh, is it changing? I go, no. And, and I seem to be okay climbing. And he says, well, what do you want to do? I said, well, I'd like to make it to Albuquerque. He says, well, if you keep climbing, you probably can fly to Albuquerque, and then you should, you should go get it checked out. And so anyway, I, I just made really slow m- movements for that flight, and I made it to Albuquerque. And, and it turned out that some of, my, some of the hoses that were attached to whatever uh, parts of the engine weren't weren't uh secure enough and there was some oil kind of coming out and so i was losing a little oil pressure but it wasn't like uh, i didn't have any oil pressure it wasn't like i needed to to um you know like immediately go back to the airport i came right, from. so right. i i ended up i ended up uh, adjusting it there and things worked out well so but that was a that taught me a lot about density altitude and and so now i'm super wary i mean i'm doing weight and balance calculations now and i'm trying to figure out and make sure i've got you know i'm, I'm not going to overload my airplane and and all that kind of stuff that i do now i never i never thought about that before and now i think about it every time i fly yeah well that, that's a, such a interesting uh scenario on on a couple fronts one is just the 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 performance difference in the airplane and the decisions that you're making on the fly and then suddenly you look and you see your oil pressure low I'm guessing everything else on the engine is running fine. So you're going, wow, the oil pressure, it's not necessarily low, but it's lower than what you're used to seeing, right? That was kind of the situation. Yeah, the dial was down, not not in the green part. It was low in the, like in the low part of the green. I go, wow, right. that doesn't look normal. But the engine sounds good. And, you know, like you said, I've, I've got full, I'm, you know, I got full power. I got everything as far, as much as I can get. Then I wasn't sure at that point. I was like, I was at like, um, Oh, I guess seven seven thousand feet. The runway was at, at that altitude. I was thinking, do I need to lean this? Is it should I be leaning this right now, or do I need full rich? What's going to give me? So I was just moving things and, and just adjusting little things, just trying to get this thing to stop descending. Mm-hmm. And I found something that just kind of stabilized it for a minute. And, and I thought, okay, well, I'm not touching a thing until I climb and get more altitude. And so, you know, I, I wasn't panicked or anything because I figured, you know, I'm. If I have to land this thing on some street, I'm gonna do, I'm just gonna land it on the street and and it's gonna be fine. I'm gonna I'm I'm gonna live through this. But I wasn't I wasn't uh, I had no uh, urge to try to make a 180 and get back to the runway because you, you, I've read enough of the NTSB where you see that that you know that's not gonna work out. Yeah, uh, it, you made some critical decisions there. It seems like you you know you're not getting the performance you want. How long was your takeoff roll? Did 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 that trigger your mind that, hmm, that seemed to be a long takeoff roll, or, 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 or not really? No, because I knew it would be long because I was at higher altitude, and, and, but I never thought about 
the weight of the airplane. I, the thing yeah. I should not have done was fill up the tip tanks because that was the of the tip tanks in the in the Beaver are forty one and a half gallons. So oh wow yeah. yeah. I could have I could have skipped that part and I probably would have been fine even even with the oil pressure thing I would have been dealing with that in a different without a different uh, scenario of 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 this just feeling like things are happening and you can't do anything about it I mean that's that was not a good feeling and and I I really want to learn from it so um, I spent a lot of time on the phone talking to these guys in Seattle that have you know ten fifteen twenty thousand beaver hours, I said, "Okay, what did I do wrong? Yeah. what could I have done? How should I have approached it and you know I'm, it was great because it's great when you talk to really experienced pilots because i think I think all pilots like to share with younger pilots and newer pilots about what they learn because it's it makes you feel good to share to share it, and you know you're maybe helping somebody and saving somebody's life. Yeah, and I, I think it's such an important part of the aviation culture. As you know, I'm in the in the safety part of of general aviation, and um, in some many respects, we're the envy of some of the other industries because of the improvements that we've seen, you know, over the last decades in our accident rate. And I, at least in part, attribute that to part of the aviation culture is being willing to take a hard and candid look at the situation you were just in, what'd you do right, what'd you do wrong, and then being willing to go share that with other people and the, the whole effort that, you know, maybe somebody vicariously shares your experience and they get smarter without having to, you know, fly through it. Yeah, I, I think that's perfectly said. Uh, I, I've, you know, my ego, I, we all have egos, of course. We always want to be the best pilot and everyone say, man, you're amazing. But it's nice when uh, you have a few people in your life, and I do, where if I call them and say, look, this is, I don't, I like even just looking at a, like an approach chart, if I'm planning a trip and I want, mm-hmm. and I just, you know, as much as I know about IFR flying, sometimes I don't, I can't understand the, the chart. I go, so I call my, my friend, his name's Curtis, and he's a really great instructor. He teaches out of uh, the Camarillo Airport. And uh, his name's Curtis Warren, a great guy, really smart. So I call Curtis, and, and on the phone, we'll go through the chart, and he tells me this, and it's like, oh, yeah, you're right, I forgot that, or thanks, and, that, and you learn. And he's, he's one of those great guys, and I think it's great if, if every pilot would have a few of these guys in their life that can help them out. And hopefully I could be that to somebody at some point when – they asked me questions about flying a flying a float plane and across the country. Yeah, well, I, in sharing your experience on this podcast, I think I think you have so I truly appreciate that. A couple other threads I, I want to pull there that are so important from a safety uh, respect, Kenny. And you mentioned that the first thing you did was you know you, you didn't panic. I mean, on on the one hand, you could see how that was a pretty tense situation where you got this very heavy beaver, you got it on amphibs. You're only a couple hundred feet off the ground. You're starting to sink a little bit, and the houses are starting to come up, you know, a, a residential area. I mean, a tense situation, and, and yet you maintain your composure. You fly the airplane, and you're thinking, right? You're going you're gonna to think your way through this because we know that a certain element of stress enables your performance. Once that stress gets to a certain point, though, you get on the backside of that performance curve, right? So, um, so. You know, you're you're just logically thinking through flying the airplane, and then the critical decision that you made that, hey, man, I'm I'm barely making lift here. The last thing I'm going to do is is turn, and unfortunately, uh, I've seen read too many reports um, where you know that wasn't the case, and they did try to make a turn, even a shallow turn. And then the problem is not just that you're going to lose lift there, but once you lose that lift and start your momentum down, 
you have nothing to break that momentum now. So it's not just that you're going to lose and be able to roll back to bank. You won't be able to reverse the momentum. Yeah. And um, that was a critical decision you made. Well, I think that's a lot has to do with the, the, the publications that come out that we all um, have access to. It's nice to read them. And, and you know, it's funny. I get, um, you know, the AOPA uh, emails and then Sporty's flying shop or pilot shop sends these emails and then there's all these things that come about hey take the quiz what do you know about uh you know uh, thunderstorms and you take the quiz and it's there's a lot of these things and 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 on youtube you can hear you know i I don't like to do too many but you hear about uh, the the bad accidents and what these guys did and it's it's there's just a lot out there that, that that you have access to so i wasn't I, I wasn't questioning the, the decisions I made. I was, I was hoping for a good, a good result, but I knew that, that there was no, there was nothing positive that's going to happen for me, not just flying straight and level and, and, and staying calm. Cause you read about the guys that panic and that try to make a 180 and then that just never works out. Yeah. They, they, you're going to land short of the runway or you're just going to end up stalling the airplane. And, and then if you stall the airplane, you're just falling out of the sky. So that's, that's not good. I'd rather fly it down to something at least i mean with the beaver i've got a big pratt and whitney engine in front of me i've got 1100 pounds of floats below me and i got these big wings and i figure if i hit something with any of this stuff other than my body it's going to absorb a lot of the of the impact and and i'm sure the plane's going to go slow enough to where i mean i figure i'm i'm going to live through this without a problem i just didn't want the hassle of it all and fortunately the result was good but I wasn't scared that that um, I wasn't doing the right things. Yeah, some ninety percent, uh, over ninety percent of off airport landings do not end in a fatality. Wow, good to know. See, I didn't know that. See, there's there's another piece of information that that will keep you from panicking if you get this problem. Yeah, and and the ones that do. I mean, I don't actually have the data to prove this, but I I'm convinced the ones that do are where people kind of do stress out too much, they do uh, panic a little bit, and they don't fly the airplane, and they end up in some kind of stall scenario. And then, you know, that's not survivable. Once you get above about 100 feet, a stall spin scenario is very, very rarely survivable. Yeah. And so your your whole goal, and this is how I like to talk to people, the whole goal when you lose an engine is you got to dissipate the energy that you're carrying. Ideally, you want to find a landing spot and dissipate that by a rollout on a, on a street or a farm or something like that. But if you can't do that, you're still going to survive it by exactly the thinking you're talking about. And that is, you're just going to use the landing gear, or in your case, the amphibs or whatever it is, and you're just going to dissipate that energy. And you really don't have need that much. You only need probably about 100 feet or so dissipating that energy, and, and you're going to be just fine. Wow. And so... Yeah, it's um, that's, it's pretty that's good interesting. To know. Yeah, and and then the final thing I, I think is really uh, impressive uh, is that you 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 landed, uh, you know, no ego involved, and you call some folks and you tell them that you trust exactly what you did and said, hey, what was happening here, <laughs> and just fully debriefing yourself on your performance and the and the right decisions you made and the wrong ones you did, just helps us get better every time. So. Um, yeah, and 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 when you're flying across the country, also it's nice. I'm I'm you know I'm in a lot of pilots' lounges all across the country, and there's always pilots around that want to talk about things. And and also one thing I I, I noticed that has been very helpful to me is when I'm in a like an area like for example I'm in Albuquerque and um, I'm talking about you know because there's from Albuquerque flying east you basically follow I four I forty 
And it's mm. not that bad, but you have to get to a certain altitude. And, yeah. and you know, if, when it's hot, it's tough to get there. So I just was, my point is, I, there was a lot of local pilots. And I said, hey, guys, you know, this is my, what I'm thinking about doing. Does anybody have any, did, am I thinking about it incorrectly? Um, do you have a better route? Or what, how would you handle this? Because you guys know this area really well. And you get a lot of great info from the local pilots. Yeah, it's certainly nice to have that local flavor, isn't it, for, for folks that know the area for sure. Well, I'm curious. So you you have your uh, pilot's license. Do you, are you checked out in the uh, airplanes that you fly in, the jets to and from your concerts? Do you ever fly those legs or you leave that to the corporate guys? Well, um, I don't do it very often. Uh, I just fly commercial most of the time. But I think back in like around 1990, um, I wanted to, to to like learn to fly a Learjet. So uh, I have a friend, my, my instructor, Harry, that, um, I, from the pilots co-op. So we were talking and, and that we were talking like, Hey, let's get, the, let's, let's find a Learjet that we can both fly and we'll fly it around my, to my concerts for the next bit of time. So we found this company that had a Learjet that they needed to, to, to have used. So he went and got his type rating, in the Learjet. I went and got my multi-engine instrument rating so I could be a legal co-pilot. And we flew this Learjet for, another thousand hours of flying over the next couple of years. And it was really, really fun. And that was a really great experience. So I'm, I know how to fly a Learjet. It was a Lear 25, but I'm oh, not nice. checked out in any of the other jets that I might find myself in, but I don't do it very often. Yeah. Yeah. Great. Um, I'll, I'll throw one more, you know, safety, uh, you know, sort of, uh, scenario, which is that, um, we just did in the Air Safety Institute. We analyzed over two thousand stalls over a, over a fifteen year period. Oh wow! And so before I looked at that, you know, we looked at where do most stalls happen. And before I looked at that, I would have thought, you know, based a final turn or final approach or something. But it's not the case. Um, overwhelmingly, the largest number of stalls happen on takeoff, climb out, and go around. Those two kind of departure yeah. phases of flight, and they're like three to four times more fatal. And so um, some of the dynamics involved in that are, you know, uh, of course, you know, coming in fully figured and then suddenly you're in a very high horsepower airplane like a Beaver, for example, and you go from your trimmed up fully, you know, ready to flare uh, uh, attitude to full power. And in some cases, a Bonanza is a good case. It takes a pretty good amount of force to make sure you keep the nose and the pitch attitude down where you want it and get, and get the airplane and the configuration back under control. Mm-hmm. And I think what happens is that what, from what, what I've seen pilots do, you're just too slow to give, the, to, to, to give it that full power. Hmm. People just maybe a little too, too uh, tentative or about it, but when you're going around or if you on takeoff, you got to just, you know, make sure you got a positive rate of climb and mm-hmm. don't, you know, don't, get that nose up so high, so fast, just make sure you got your airspeed building up and, and, you know, it's, you're not, you're not, we're not the, uh, you know, like an F-18. So it's not like you can point the nose up and give it power and you're just going to start climbing. It's, it takes, it takes a lot of thought process to make sure you have a positive rate of climb before you get rid of your gear and your flaps and stuff like that. So, um, yeah, I, 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 but I take, I always fly with pilots a lot of times. I, I, I just get recurrent all the time, even if I'm, legally ready i just go ah you know i'd like to fly with this guy or that guy and and learn this or that because and and sad effect there's a really great um delta airline captain out that flies out of camarillo he's a really great guy um and so sometimes we'll just uh, i say hey would you shoot a couple approaches with me and tell me what you think and he's just and plus he knows how to fly beaver really well so oh nice yeah he um 
Yeah, we had an incident one time when we were flying a, an approach into Camarillo, and um, I, I, ha- I had a really old GPS, so hmm. really hard to program. Was Were you in IMC conditions or, or VMC? We were in IMC. Okay, so you're flying an approach in the weather. Yeah, well, uh, first first we take off, so we go through the layer, and now we're, now we're VFR on top, but, but basically we're on an IFR clearance, so he's vectoring us to come back down and, and you know, um, get the final approach course, but by the time you 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 capture it, uh, we're going to be probably back in the cloud. So I programmed my, my GPS, I thought I did, hit all the buttons I thought I needed to hit, and now we're now we're in IMC, and you, and you get that that last thing, which is, you know, Beaver 5, 3 kilo, you know, you're, you're three miles from such and such, mm-hmm. turn right, heading so and so, and until established, you're clear for the approach. So I do all that, but my needles aren't doing what I think they should do, but we're in the clouds, mm-hmm. so we're totally... Nothing. There's nothing to see, and I didn't like anything about what I saw. And I thought, man, I mean, did I program this wrong or whatever? And and um, and and I, so I looked at my my Delta guy who, and I said, hey, Jeff, do you know what's going on with this? He goes, I don't know how to use your GPS. <laughs> <laughs> I said, okay. So I called the tower. I said, listen, guys, um, I. I just don't see good things on this, this GPS right now. I need you to vector me out of these out of the clouds. So they say, yeah, turn right heading 275, climb to 4,000. So we do that, get out of, into the sunshine again on top, and I had a chance to figure out that I just forgot to, you know, hit some, you know, button mm-hmm. that's, it's it's cumbersome in those old GPSs. Yeah. But anyway, um, just another thing to, to point out that, you know, if you catch yourself in a bad thing and you're just not sure, just ask for help. Like I asked my, my co-pilot for help. I asked the tower to help me. I'm I'm never one to shy away from asking anybody that's on the other side of that radio to help me with this. Do you see me? Am I on the right? Do, does it look like I'm doing the approach correctly? I'm not that familiar with this approach. And I've said that so many times when I'm in the clouds. And, man, they can't, they can't help you fast enough. They want to help you so badly. Boy, Kenny, that is such a, this is such a, a hot point, uh, especially lately, that we're really trying to work with. And, and that is... Exactly that, and and not to be afraid to ask for help. That you know nobody, you know, you're not going to lose your ticket, and especially in this latest era, with the FAA's really taken on a, a more compliance uh, type approach to to how they want to help us, you know, and they understand that people make honest mistakes, and so. I can't tell you how many, you know, audios and videos I've listened to where everybody knows the pilot's in trouble. He knows it, but he just doesn't want to fess up and, and ask for help. Right. Um, it's such a critical thing to do, and it's so easy. And the and the other piece of that was it, it really didn't matter why the CDI wasn't working well. You didn't really have time to study it. You were you were in IMC conditions, um, and you don't know why. There's no point in trying to investigate that. Hey, this isn't working. Give me a vector out of here, and then get up to where you can look at it, and you know, with more time and space. That's that's yeah, boy, that's and, such critical. Yeah, and I fi- I figured uh, you know if the thing doesn't work right, I'll just go to another airport that's VFR and and you know get a cab and go home, and I'll figure it out later. Yeah, there's no, right. you know, it's it's there's so much of this. You know, you, you got to get there. You got to finish the mission. I mean, I've been there before, and I've I've had those feelings and. It's just not. It it in the long run, it doesn't pay off. Uh, Any time that I've pushed the envelope, maybe done some done some scud running that I'm not proud of. But then I got to my destination, and once I got there, I thought, you know, I didn't really need to be here that badly that I had to push it that much. You know, flying that low, um, and that's not cool. And I'm and so I've done that enough times to where now I'm 
no problem asking for help. And if you need one thing, I'll, I'll, another thing I'd suggest was if you have a chance to get your instrument rating, get your instrument rating. Mm-hmm. It, it literally can save your life if you, you know, even if it's not something that you do a lot, just knowing just the basics. And even if you're not super, super current, but you might find yourself trying to scud run a little bit and all of a sudden you're, you find yourself in the clouds, you know, then you won't panic, you know, basic instrument flying and you'll, you'll be all right. And just, you know, even if you catch yourself in the clouds, just radio, Hey, I'm in the clouds now. I need some help. And just at least you know how to fly. So you're not going to panic and, and, and like get into a spin or a stall. You'll just know, okay, I'm in the clouds. I'm going to fly this heading and I know how to keep my wings level and then ask for somebody to help you out and you'll live through it rather than, panicking because you're scared to admit that you got yourself into a bad spot. Right. Yeah, I, I agree with you. I, I do think that uh, an IFR uh, ticket helps you become a better pilot. Uh, and then um, that's such a dangerous scenario for, for VFR pilots. If, you, if you're if you a VFR pilot and you wander into IMC conditions and you have a mishap, your survival rate is about 8%. Wow. It's such a treacherous place to be. So we, we continue to try to press people to don't press it, make your decision early. And to your point, Kenny, you know, the, the more training you can get, the better pilot you're going to be. Um, but, but try to avoid that scenario and, and get back the other way. If you're a, if you're a VFR pilot. Wow. I yeah. didn't know it was 8%. That, that's, yeah. That's scary, isn't it? It Gosh. is, and, and it continues to be one of the high, you know, category rates that, where we have fatalities year after year. So somehow we've got to keep working to get the message out that if you're a, either a VFR pilot or you're an IFR pilot, but you're not very proficient or you're in a new airplane and you wander into IMC conditions unexpectedly, that is such a treacherous place to be. Yeah. I mean, if you know your terrain, if you know, let's just say, you, you're, you, let's say you find yourself in the clouds and you know there's no big mountains well, you know, the chances of you really running into another airplane, even though let's say you're, you know, you have no IFR clearance, you're in the clouds and you basically know how to fly. You know, maybe you want to climb up another thousand feet. You're probably not going to run into an airplane. I'm, I'm not saying you, that this is something that we should do, but the chances are so minimal that if you know how to fly, you get up there and you call and go, hey, I'm, I screwed up. Here I am. I need, I need vectors and just basic flying skills will get you where you need to go. And you don't have to like try to make this crazy 180 in the clouds because you want to go back where you came from, because where you came from might not be any better anymore because you, you can't yeah. see behind you when you're flying. Yeah. Yeah. It closes in behind you. It does. Man. Yeah. I'm, <laughs> I mean, I'm telling you when, when I, when you fly across the country in these, the single engine plane, you get your, there's a lot of scenarios and, and, with a good thing about a beaver, I found myself in that same scenario where I knew that if I kept doing what I'm doing, I'm going to end up IMC. So I turned around and I looked back behind me and it's not good either, but I had, but I had a lake underneath me. So I just landed on the lake and waited out. <laughs> so I'm just going to land here. And the funny thing was it was on, it was on Lake Huron up in the, up oh, in Ontario. Yeah. And I landed and, and then some people that were, cause I landed pretty close to shore and some some of the people that had their little codges there came out in their kayaks and they go, "Are you okay?" I go, "Sure, yeah, I'm fine. I'm just going to wait out the weather." And then they said, "Hey, do you want to come in for some coffee?" And so I ended up, you know, beaching the airplane and meeting new people. And no it, was, I, it was a great few hours. I spent like three hours, and, and then then one of the younger people said, "Hey, I, I, you look familiar to me." I said, "Oh gosh, here we go. <laughs> Can I take a picture with you?" I said, "Sure." So I ended up talking to this family up in up in Ontario for a while, and then. 
waiting out the weather and and then uh, you know three or four hours later it was a lot it was a lot better and i got where i needed to go and it was it was a great experience so you could i could have kept pushing and who knows what would have happened right yeah and as a, as as a result of not doing it you had a good experience and you gave some other people a pretty fun experience to talk about too so that's pretty cool <laughs> i i think i think so too went for a nice swim and had a nice you know cup of coffee or whatever and had a nice chat with a nice family, and and I, all, I I said to them, look, I'm going to take off again. If I if the weather's not looking great, I'm going to come back and spend the night. I said, do you got a bed? They go, yeah, we'll find a bed for you. I said, cool. So <laughs> you got you always have options as long as you as long as you stay safe. You have lots of options. It just might be you might get to your destination a day later. And gosh, you know, mm. if you think back in your life to all the years that we've been alive. Would a would a day matter? Would even a would even a month matter? So if you think about that, this this thing that we have this press pressure of, got to get there, got to get there fast, faster than anybody, and and trying to be efficient with our time, it it honestly doesn't really matter when you when you think that that the other side of that could be you know could be something that's fatal, and you don't want that. Yeah, boy, yeah, help helpful helpful words. That that's real. I couldn't agree with you more. Yeah. Well, Kenny, this has really been enjoyable for me. I, I appreciate your time, and thank you so much for sharing your stories. Oh, my pleasure. Uh, what's what's coming up for Kenny G lately? I, I'm trying to schedule this with you. You've obviously got a very busy concert um, season, and it's about to pick back up again. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, I'm starting. Um, let's see. I'm, I'm going to be in New York in a couple of days. I've got some performance there. And then, we, you know, basically, I'm on the road kind of on and off. That's just my life. I, I play a week or two, and then I come home for a week or two, and I play a week or two. And sometimes I'm on the road for three or four weeks, and then I'm, sometimes I'm home for a month. So it just keeps on going. I'm going to start recording another record um, pretty soon. But it's, it's great, you know. And, and when my gigs are somewhere in the Southern California area, I, I fly the beaver to them, and that's a super amount of fun. And uh, right now, the the beavers up in Seattle getting its annual, you know, by, by the experts, the mm-hmm. guys that do nothing but beavers. So it's got up there, and I'm getting finally. This is the year I'm getting a new GPS. I'm so I've been thinking about it for years, Richard. You know. Yeah. And then after a couple of these bad programming errors that I did, where I just told you about earlier, I thought, okay, I need a I need a GPS that's because when you're flying IFR and you get a change in your clearance. Man, it's really hard to program these old ones where you yeah. have to scroll down and type in lines, and right. rather than just using your finger like a, like an iPhone and scrolling and touching and pulling and 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 that kind of a thing. So, I'm super excited to get the airplane back, and when I do, I'll I'll be you know doing some training with it with some you know some experts on this particular GPS and learn how to really you know get my flying skills even better. But that you know that's all that's coming up. Just more of that, and you know you know I, I'm I'm pretty lucky. I get to to play my saxophone for a living and I, I, I'm, I love flying and I've been lucky enough to be able to own this beaver and, um, you know, I get good instruction and, and so I feel like I'm, I'm lucky that I get good information and it makes me a better pilot because it's, I've had some great experiences flying. I've been, one of my cross countries, I took my two sons with me and we, we crisscrossed the country and we went to, you know, Lake Powell. We landed there and mm, camped mm-hmm. out overnight. We went to, um, um, Yosemite. Oh. Uh, we went to uh, where else did we go? Mount Rushmore. We went. We had just an adventure. It was a really fun adventure. And man, you know, it, it's been a it's just been a pleasure to 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 be a pilot. And I, I I take it seriously. So you know, respecting 
the art of flying is something that I think pilots should do as much as possible. Well, thank you for sharing that, and thank you for sharing your stories. We, we wish you the best of luck. And if you uh, if you get in the Beavers near Frederick, Maryland, or, or any other airplane, stop in uh, stop in AOPA headquarters at KFDK there and, and stop in and say hi. Hey, I will. Next time I take that plane to the East Coast, I'll make that a stop. It'll be a lot of fun to, to shake hands and if you feel like taking a ride up there, maybe we can find, uh, maybe land on one of the rivers there with the Potomac or something. I think I've landed in before. Oh, awesome. Yeah, yeah I'll, I'll take you up on that for sure. Thanks again, Kenny. Hope to talk to you soon. Okay, Richard. Bye. Bye-bye. Wow, what an interesting conversation with Kenny to hear about uh, some of the challenges that he's faced as he's flying. And then really what comes out of that is just you can hear it, his uh, love of aviation and his appreciation for it. And I really appreciated his whole uh, take, as you could tell from, he aggressively reaches out to people to just seek information. Uh, He seeks coaching, he seeks tips on how to improve his flying. If he knows he's weak in some area or he knows he hasn't done it in a while, he'll go find an instructor that he trusts and go out and, uh, and work himself through different profiles. And that's such an excellent uh, example for all of us and how to just keep your flying sharp and how to keep improving your skills. Well, that's one of the more enjoyable conversations I've had. Uh, as, as famous and well-known as Kenny G is, as soon as we began talking about flying, he was, it was a very easy conversation, just two pilots talking to each other about challenges we face, mistakes we made. I certainly appreciated his candor and his willingness to share some of the mistakes he's made and how he approaches his flying. You could really tell he's, he's disciplined in his personal life and also disciplined in his flying. And because of that, he's done some pretty challenging flying in that beaver and done it quite successfully. So uh, we appreciate Kenny's time. Thanks for joining us. And we wish him all the best and fly safe in the future. There I Was is produced by the AOPA Air Safety Institute. If you'd like to hear other episodes, submit comments, or submit your own story to potentially be featured on the show, please visit airsafetyinstitute.org slash there I was. Thanks and fly safe.